Hi, thanks for being here with the Austin Connection podcast. The first thing you should know about the Austin Connection is that it is also a free newsletter. Join us at austinconnection.substack.com to find a community of people connected around the stories of Jane Austen. See you there. I was first given a, a Pride and Prejudice when I was, I think, around 12, 13, 14, um, by, my, by an aunt of mine. And um, she gave me a really beautiful uh, red leather-bound copy with gold lettering on it. And I opened it up, and I read the first sentence, which is, you know, it's the truth universally acknowledged, et cetera, et cetera. And I promptly shut the book and said, okay, I'm not reading. And it was a pretty thick <laughs> book, the, the copy that she gave me. And I, I, I remember thinking, I, I don't know what this is, what, what I just read. I'm not reading this book. Hello, welcome to the Austin Connection. I'm your host, Plain Jane, navigating with you as we explore how Austin's stories connect to us today and connect us to each other. You may not have realized this, but Jane Austen was Pakistani. Or at least for author Sonia Kamau, when she first read Pride and Prejudice as a teenager, Kamau reimagined the world presented to her to include the streets and foods and even the kala, or aunties, of Pakistan. The result is unmarriageable. Pride and Prejudice in Pakistan. It's a parallel retelling. And I sought out Sonia Kamel after hearing many people say that it's their favorite retelling of Jane Austen. When I reached Kamel, she was visiting Pakistan, the place of her birth. Growing up, she also spent time in England, Saudi Arabia, and currently lives in the US and Georgia. But in this conversation, you could hear the streets, the vibrancy, and the energy of Pakistan in the background of this audio. Here's my conversation with Sonia Kamal. Enjoy. Let me start with a really simple question, as Sonia Kamal. Um, when did you sure. first encounter the novels of Jane Austen? When and where? And how has uh, Austen and her stories shaped your life ever since? You know, I was first given uh, a Pride and Prejudice when I was, I think, around 12, 13, 14, something around that age. I don't remember exactly, um, by, my, by an aunt of mine. And what she gave me was, um, uh, this was, I, I, I believe, around the 70s. And um, she gave me a really beautiful uh, red leather-bound copy with gold lettering on it. Um, and I opened it up. And I read the first sentence, which is, you know, it's the truth universally acknowledged, et cetera, et cetera. And I promptly shut the book and said, okay, I'm not reading. And it was a pretty thick <laughs> book, the, the copy that she gave me. And I, I, I remember thinking, I, I don't know what this is, what, what I just read. I'm not reading this book. And then I think, um, I think I was around 16 when I finally opened the novel. And I like to joke, it must've been a rainy day, but I don't know why I opened it. And I started to read it and I read it cover to cover. And it was a quintessentially Pakistani novel. I mean, I could have been reading about a novel set. It could have been set in Pakistan completely. I mean, Jane Austen didn't know she was Pakistani. And I actually started calling her Jane Khala in my mind. Khala means aunt, like maternal aunt. It's, it's, it, and, and I just started calling her Jane Khala. And, um, you know, and that's what I, I just loved the novel. And, and, and I actually grew up in Saudi Arabia for, for a, a while. Um, and went to an international school there. And my library had books from the US and the UK and what it may have lacked 
the international uh, student body would bring back home from summers and stuff. But the one thing that I never could find way back then was a book written in English, but set in Pakistan. And English is my first uh, language. Um, English is a official language of Pakistan. It became so in 1947, even though the origins of it are not that um, delightful. But, um, you know, and, and reading Jane Austen at that at 16, I, I'd already, what I'd started to do um, in a most, a lot of my reading was flip um, settings and, and stuff. So like bonnets would turn into dupattas, sandwiches would turn into scones and stuff. So when I read Austin at 16, it just seemed, I, you know, my, I didn't, it didn't seem other or whatever, which is why when I say that it was a quintessentially Pakistani novel, my brain was already doing that, you know, the, the dresses were shalwar kurtas and, and everything. So there just seemed the, the dialogue, the scenarios, the characters, the concerns, the thematic material, uh, and, it, and it's all very relevant to today too. Well, so, yes. I mean, and yeah. that is what we do when we're reading novels. We're using our imaginations to recreate our own world, which is what's so powerful about it. So <laughs> funny to hear, think about um, a young Sonia Kamal, you know, reading that first <laughs> sentence that we love. It is a truth universally acknowledged. I have uh, some teens in my life and they have emptied my shelves of Jane Austen because I press Jane Austen on them. But the thing that oh, I'm very nice. careful to say, Sonia, you're reminding me, as I always say, she's sarcastic, okay? So, and oh, she's yes. funny. And I, and I think maybe that's what fascinated me, or at least definitely caught me, was that I happen to be, yes, it's funny, but the humor is, is it's sarcasm, you know? Even the irony and sarcasm are sort of closely related. And I think what I had sort of done to be able to survive myself in the society that I found myself living in was sarcasm also. So Austin just, you know, she was she was just perfect for me. Um, her little, her her wit, her quips, her her social insights. But it wasn't just that she had social insights and they were ha ha funny. They were she had she word she words them so well, and she has such an astute understanding of characters of people, and she, she she doesn't she doesn't mock people. She mocks institutions, and and she shows. You know, her irony and her sarcasm are, are her um, medium of uh, her humor and her and her being funny. And I really, really related to that. I really love that, that she wasn't making fun of people. She was making fun of the of the institutions and the ideas that had given, you know, birth to these people. Well, yes, let's tackle that. I mean, she's she's not just funny, not slapstick funny, as you say. Right. She's wickedly funny because she's she's taking on these incredible institutions and she's taking on society and she's demanding to be listened to it. And yeah. you can so see that as an, as an older person, like every time you read Austin and reread Austin. And Sonia, you tackle a lot of themes in the first few pages of Unmarriageable. <laughs> I could see yeah. that you are tackling so many of the themes that people don't actually associate with Austin. Things like you yeah. just mentioned, like class oppression, gender oppression, hypocrisy of society, things that were not only annoying to women in the Regency era and in Jane Austen's world, but are, are dangerous and are still dangerous today. Um, and really, it's all right there and unmarriageable in the first few pages. So tell me about how conscious this was for you. Uh, you know, I was very, very conscious. In fact, what I wanted to do with the first chapter 
was set up all the thematic material that I felt was in Austin as well as in Unmarriageable. And um, what, and you know, Unmarriageable works on two levels. It's a completely standalone novel. So if you know nothing about Jane Austen or not coming from Pride and Prejudice, it's still a standalone novel in its own right. However, it's also an homage to Pride and Prejudice. I mean, it's a post-colonial pa parallel retelling and parallel because it follows the originals plot and all the characters are there. And it's a post-colonial retelling because I was trying to um, remap the linguistic history of British Empire. So this was very much a, a project for me rather than just something fun that I thought I would do. Um, you know, and I was very intimidated by what I was setting out to do. Um, I don't know if there's any parallel retelling actually out I haven't come across one. To, I think this might be the may well be the first one, but um, because I was taking on British Empire and Pope and colonialism and post-colonialism also, um, that was intimidating. Uh, so on these two levels, um, I had to satisfy two different groups of, of readers, which are polar opposite, coming from Austin and not knowing Austin at all. And um, what I but for the Austin readers though, what I definitely wanted to do was put Easter eggs throughout the the narrative. And they're actually um, nods to all of her six completed novels, as well as Lady Susan. And the very first of my, my opening for Unmarriageable is um, it's it's a nod to Pride and Prejudice, sure, you know, it's the truth universally acknowledged. And and those rewrite, those reimaginings, retellings of her iconic first sentence continue in the first chapter. But um, it's also uh, my, my favorite Austin novel is actually Mansfield Park. And I think the opening for Mansfield Park is fantastic because it just encapsulates what traditionally and for centuries women's women's lives actually were, which was the ring that your finger wore ended up determining your life and the life of your children, your opportunities, your privileges. And Austin depicts that. I mean, I remember when I read Mansfield Park for, I, I just love Mansfield Park. I can go on, on about Mansfield Park forever. But well, you know, I'm, I'm with the, you there, yes. Okay, so great, great. A lot of people don't like Mansfield Park. Like when I say it's my favorite, sometimes I get very odd looks. Like, what's wrong with you? you know, but but you know the opening. Yeah, I, I just have to jump in and just say I'm so with you, and that's the one that I tend to press on my teenagers because I say, look, this is about a group of young people stuck in a house together. <laughs> you know, yes, it, and what and, do they and do? it's interesting. It's so interesting you say that. I've never really thought of it like that. <laughs> it is though, definitely. For, for, for me, Mansfield, I mean, the begin, the opening of Mansfield Park are three sisters, and because of who they end up married to, one of them, you know, lolls about on the sofa all day long with her dog. The other one needs to suck up to the owner of the mansion, and the third one has to send her kids away because she can't afford their upbringing. And they've all grown up in the same environment. They're sisters. They've come from the same family. But look at what happened to their life just by dint of who they ended up getting married to. And in a lot of traditional cultures, that is still the case, you know. And, and coming from Pakistan, where I see this, saw this then, see this today. And I think what I absolutely loved in it, it was the first time that I had read a novel where family relationships, you know, in, in Pride and Prejudice and Emma, etc. even though we do see uh, uh, lots of families, what Austin really picks apart on is the social milieu, the, the friends and the people visiting and, and, and you know, the, 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 what is it, one in 20 families and stuff. But in Mansfield Park, like you said, she keeps this group of people in the house and what she picks apart are relatives and family relationships and what family means. I, I think I fell in love with that novel because it is by far one of 
surrealist novels that I, the most honest novels I have still read about what it means to belong and to unbelong in a family. You know, what everything you were saying, Sonia, makes me realize, I think a lot of people mistakenly sort of, you know, are feminist friends, you know, and, uh, you know, I consider myself a feminist as well, but uh, all of our feminist colleagues and friends, I think sometimes might think, have the question, what does Jane Austen, what's relevant about Jane Austen? And I think maybe that's because with the adaptations, you think that these are novels about marriage, but really it's about the precarity of women. It's, marriage was the the option. Marriage was so important for the reasons you're saying. I mean, I mean, in, yeah, in Regency England, in Austen's time, marriage was the only thing women of a certain class could do. I mean, if you came from the servant classes, you could perhaps get gain employment as a cook, as a maid, etc. But from Austen's own class, she, you couldn't do that. The only option you had was to become a governess. And that wasn't a nice thing, as we know from Emma, or at least Austen wasn't that impressed by it, because you were neither a menial uh, servant, so you didn't even get to eat with them, but you, because, uh, because you were educated. But however, because you were employed and you were given a salary, you weren't part of the household either, unless you were invited. So you were in a very in-between. Um, you were neither here nor there. And, and Austin doesn't seem to be too happy about that. So Regents England was harsh on women. They couldn't, you know, they couldn't work. And, um, and- And harsh on, harsh on Jane Austen. I mean, Jane Austen yes, had these precarious positions as well. Right, but she, she chose those for herself um, in, in so far as she said no to Harry's big with her. I mean, she could have married rich per se, or at least had led a comfortable life and given her a mother and sister a comfortable life too. But she chose not to. Um, and 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 in, interestingly enough, if if I am correct in in the timeline, she actually she actually wrote her novels where Elizabeth says no. There there didn't there uh, refused proposals in all of her novels in each and every one of them. And um, many she wrote before she said no to Harris Big with her herself. So it's it's really interesting to see to see that um, off the page on the page. Um, shadow shadow life her her real life and and the mirror on her uh, you know on the page especially prior to her saying no but um but you know in, in regency england also i think that the worst thing per se was um once you got married any property you bought your kids everything you yourself you belong to your husband you were their property so it was it's saying yes to someone wasn't just a question of oh are we gonna get you know are we gonna get along and have lovely strolls and, 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 you know, have walks around the drawing room and the park. It was, if you didn't get along with this person or if he was cruel or horrible and you were in a, you're in a bad position as a woman. And the fact is, I, as we know with a lot of relationships, things don't stay static, people change. So, so women, um, the precariousness of a woman's position in her home or in her husband's heart or wherever the hell in Regency England was not a fun, no fun place to be at all because they had no power. They lacked complete agency. Per se. But the um, thing the thing that I love that you, you mentioned that Fanny and Eliza and Austin's characters are very astute. And I think that's really, really important in these characters is their judginess. You know, there's people are judging each other constantly. And the biggest and harshest judges are... Austin's leading ladies and leading men like they are the smartest people in the room and uh, you really capture this and I feel like in a way Austin I feel like Pride and Prejudice upends all of our all of her values Regency values and she 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 
she calculates the outer resources, but she also gives the inner resources at the same time, right? So this person's rich, but they're uh, unbearable. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. she, she, no, she mean, sizes yeah. people up, their incomes and their character together. Right. And you have your characters, Alice and Darcy, are the smartest people in the room. They are the judgiest people <laughs> in the room. Yes. And they judge yes. each other. And there's always this opposition. Um, but that's how, in these precarious positions, women survive, is by being excellent judges of character and of their situations and also being honest. Do you find that? Yeah. Well, some of the women are like are that way. I mean, Lydia certainly isn't. Right. Um, I, th I think I think I think actually I uh, well first I, I think it's interesting that you said you know about prejudging and everything because the thing is pride and prejudice is prejudice is really when you break the word apart apart it's prejudge that's what you know you're you're prejudging <laughs> everyone and that's exactly what Elizabeth does but you know I find um, I think for me in sense and sensibility the um, Lucy Steele, the Steele sisters, but especially Lucy, I, I think out of, I personally think out of all of her novels, um, Lucy is the most astute in many ways, you know? And you're reminding me while I'm oversimplifying it in many ways, um, for brevity, really, there's so many nuances to her characters. Let me ask you about a little bit about the characters in Unmarriageable. I, I love it that, you know, there's always this opposition between the, the leading man and the heroine that we know need to end up together <laughs> and so much suspense is created out of that um, and there's so much opposition between them but at the same time the reader is allowed to see you know things that they might have in common and all of this is un unmarriageable as well but it's interesting what you choose to make Darcy and Alice understand about each other is there's a sort of global citizenship um, the fact that they've had this, and then they've had this um, post-colonial education that's been, as you described it, Sonia, and I want to hear more about it, um, very English first in so many ways. And Darcy says something very interesting. He says, we've both been educated on the literature of others. What, what did you mean by having Darcy say this and having this as being the thing that the, our two people about to fall in love have in common? my own background came into my mind. I was like, okay, you know, they're, they're third culture kids and um, they've grown up overseas. Um, they've gone to international schools and this is what they'll connect over. And, 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 and I, think, I think partly it wasn't just the ease of knowing this world because I come from it, but also because it was very important for me in the landscape of Unmarriageable because Unmarriageable is very much an East, West, East and West um, come together book, you know? whether it's through the books that I mentioned in, in it, the analogous literatures, you know, there, there's this line by, uh, in, in one of Kipling's poems where he says, you know, never shall, East and West never shall the twain meet. And I think in Unmarriageable, they definitely do. And, and very purpose, uh, purposefully because, um, because of uh, British empire, uh, in fact, one of my epigraphs is uh, by Thomas Babington Macaulay and Plowshares, uh, someone wrote a, a lovely essay uh, through the prism of my epigraphs about Unmarriageable uh, on, on this lit library journal called Plowshares, which you can find online. Um, and I, I was so gratified because usually people don't read epigraphs and stuff and we put them there for a purpose. So when I saw, you know, when, when, when I saw an entire essay on, on my epigraphs, I was like, oh my God, I have, I've just been shower confetti time. So, um, 
You know, but but one of my epigraphs, like I said, is from his 1835 speech to British Parliament, in which he's recommending that English replace um, all the indigenous languages as the official language in empire. Um, and, and that is what ended up happening. And therefore, English became the language of privilege, power, opportunity. So because English became this major important language, it everyone aspired to learn it. Uh, the, the, the twist comes when in 1947, uh, British Empire left the Indian subcontinent and Pakistan and India became sovereign countries. Pakistan retained English and declared it as one of its official language. So English is very much a Pakistani language. Um, however, it happens to be one of the only language, it, it's actually the only language I can speak fluently for the most part. Um, I mean, I can speak Urdu also in a smattering of Kashmiri. My, my parents are by, from two different cultures within the subcontinent. But um, I can't, re English is the only language I can read and write in. And uh, I did not know the origins of this language that was coming out of my mouth. I happened to come across Babington's um, speech. I was doing some extra reading for myself. And I was, it was really, um, it was really disturbing to see the, say the least, because as I say in my epigraph, what he wanted to do was uh, create confused people who were brown in skin, but white in sensibilities, and basically create confusion and split loyalties and whatnot. Now, well, yes, and, and what you're saying, because I did read your epigraph as well, and I had a question for you. Um, that must have been incredibly disturbing. And what he was talking about actually was, was education, right? He, you quote him as saying, English is better worth knowing than Sanskrit or Arabic. So yeah, I think that's astounding and really needs to be pointed out that this was creating, like you say, chaos, but also privilege. It was creating uh, layers of privilege that were not necessary. It, it, yeah, I mean, it created privilege and stuff, definitely. And, and, and we see that in contemporary Pakistan also, because as I, one of the themes in Unmarriageable is the class divide between those who come from an English, fluent English language background with proper accents, you know, what is considered proper accents and stuff versus those who are not. But, but you know, yeah, it was, but, but the thing is reading, reading that, reading his essay, reading the origins of this, it was, it, I mean, it was disturbing as an understatement. And I think I, for the longest time, I couldn't read that quote out loud without just, um, without just uh, tearing up. Um, but, the, but the fact is that English is an official language in Pakistan and, and I wanted to fuse the language that is mine and the culture that is mine. And really a lot of unmarriageable came from that desire also. And actually uh, Professor um, Nalini at uh, Seattle University called um, unmarriageable Macaulay's worst nightmare. And I don't, I, I, I don't know if there can ever be a compliment to top that because, um, because as British subjects, even post-colonial, you were, you, were, you were supposed to look up to everything white and British and think, and, you know, and never just look up to it and admire it, but never. And, um, and, and I, I guess I did flip the narrative on that one. <laughs> <laughs> Which was it. the and reason I, for writing it. Too, well, so. And, you know, Darcy and Alice and Unmarriageable are big readers, and your novel is really a celebration of books. And it's a celebration of the English writers that you and Darcy um, will have grown up with, uh, but also a celebration of Indian and Pakistani, Pakistani writers. And Pakistani writers. 
resources. You you mentioned uh, to Callie Crossley on WGBH that you hear often that people are encou- encountering and discovering Jane Austen through Unmarriageable and that the first time somebody said, oh, I loved Unmarriageable, I'm going to check out Jane Austen, you burst into tears. This is where, once again, empire and countries who have privilege and um, uh, neo-colonialism and, 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 and everything, what happens is that whereas empire and those of us who are brown etc brought up on british literature are aware of austin and hardy and dickens etc someone who wants to flip that will not necessarily i mean the general public in certain countries will not be aware of the pakistani writers or stuff and and in fact i think darcy that's what i think darcy says that at one point which is or elizabeth does which is you know will there ever be someone doing that actually? You know, I, I forget the exact quote. And, um, and that's where power structure comes into play. And that's where uh, soft pop culture and soft power and domin- domination happens. And that's exactly what Macaulay meant when he meant brown and skin, but white and sensibilities, which is that these people will grow up on everything British, British literature. You know, that's what you, you, you quoted Darcy saying, literature of others. The fact is, um, I have grown up on British literature and it's very much mine too, but it, it, it was supposed to other me from myself really, because having been brought up in English, um, I, and, and I, I was not able to really read things. I wasn't able to read things set within the culture itself, which is why I had this burning desire to, to read a piece of literature, which I'd grown up with within my own cultural paradigm, uh, you know, prism and stuff. So so, so all of this comes into play, just identity politics and who gets to, who decides how they are going to change people's identities. All the novels and all the short stories that I've mentioned in, in Unmarriageable are, reflect the theme of Unmarriageable and the theme of identity in, 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 in some way. I think one of my favorites and one of, I think the one that is, encapsulates it the best for me is um, the Native American writer, Leslie Marmon Silco. Um, I think Alice makes her students read the, her short story, um, Lullaby. Her short story, Lullaby. Um, Lullaby is about uh, children who were taken from Native American tribes by um, uh, white uh, settlers who had come in and um, sent to boarding schools, and they were not allowed to speak their tribal languages. They were not allowed to wear their native, uh, you know, tribal dress. They, they, I believe, they had to cut their hair. They did exactly what Macaulay tried to do, which is brown in skin but white in sensibility. And um, uh, Silco's story is so beautiful because she talks about what happens when you strip away someone's native identity and try to make them other, and how you. What, what you do to their souls. And when, when these children come back home, they can't speak the language of their parents and grandparents anymore. What is lost in that? Um, but, but like I said, for me, I wanted to do something which fused this language, which is, which I've, t- you know, it is mine and, and with the culture. So I wanted to do something light, bright and sparkling with it. <laughs> Even though it's very, it's very heavy and can be very troubling. Well, <laughs> It's it's everything, and uh, you know, and I love that you say Jane Austen is mine, and Jane Austen belongs to everyone. You mentioned that someone said to you, uh, Sir Thomas Macaulay, 
uh, would roll over in his grave if he saw a oh, marriage. Yeah. Nightmare. She said. She said it's this worst is nightmare. Okay. This is nightmare. But you know, <laughs> yeah. Jane Austen would have celebrated it and loved it. So you know, we have Jane Austen's permission. I think. I hope so. I hope so. But I think. I think she would have. I think she would have chuckled. You're listening to The Austin Connection. I'm Plain Jane, and in this episode, we talked with author Sonia Kamau, whose novel Unmarriageable is a unique parallel retelling of the Jane Austen classic. We're talking about how Jane Austen's world is universal and applies across continents and time zones and centuries, reaching us with meaning and power today, wherever we are. You can see more at my Substack page, The Austin Connection. Thanks for being here. Now, back to the conversation. You know, you have managed to write with Unmarriageable, like you called it a parallel retelling, really scene-by-scene retelling, which is fascinating. In some ways, it's a challenge just to show you can do this scene-by-scene, even though we are in Pakistan for for this uh, story, and we are, you know, in the early 2000s, I think, for for most of this story. So we can go across centuries and and continents and still do a scene-by-scene retelling with all the right characters, including Wickham, um, who's wonderful in Pride and Prejudice. But you also introduced some fascinating things. There's You introduced some um, body image uh, concepts, lots of uh, talk about um, premarital sex, abortions, um, and also colorism is something that I w- would love to hear you talk about these um, contemporary themes and also your, your experiences that kind of also go into this very, very close retelling. You know, I, did, I, I, I always meant to do a retelling because for me, like I said, this was a post-colonial writing back to empire, you know, remapping empire um, and its legacy. So there was never any, you know, it wasn't, it, there was, I never, I never considered a prequel or sequel inspired by spinoff. There, that wasn't what I planned to do. Um, so a scene by scene retelling is, is very difficult because contemporary Pakistan is definitely not Regency England. And anyone who says that does not know what they're talking about as far as I'm concerned, um, because in contemporary Pakistan, women can get educated, women, you know, they can, I mean, you can, they're, they're women across the board in all sorts of jobs, you, you can get a divorce, you're not stuck. You're literally not stuck jobless and in a marriage the way Regency women were. So, so I, so you know, to say it's Regency England is, is just not right. When it, yes, there is a bit when it comes to morality because Pakistan and Regency England still expects its women to be good, and you know, but but so I always think of it in terms of evangelical Christianity, which also expects its women to be pure. Well, and um, you know, so I have so, to jump in there and say that was I, I grew up in evangelical Christianity, and I wasn't going to take the time. But I thought at the end of this conversation, I need to make sure Sonia knows that that is um, absolutely a contemporary parallel. And so, oh, when Sonia knows Jane world, <laughs> what's relevant about Jane Austen's world. You know, it, it's relevant to my world in the 1980s and the 19. 1990s even today even today i mean i mean pakistan very much is it has its own purity culture where good girls are expected to expected to you know um uphold certain uh, morals and um and if you don't do that you can get into big trouble and so thematically doing a parallel retelling for me was very easy because 
the morality in which Austin's characters function is very much the morality even today in which Pakistani women are supposed to function, um, or at least thrive the best. And if you don't, then then like you know, like me, if you're if you're opinionated, if you talk back, if you ask things like I would ask my dad, well, you know, what's wrong with smoking? If you can smoke, why can't I? Why can guys go out at this time at night? And why can't I? You know. Um, just to give just to give very teenagey examples. <laughs> so her thematic material, I think, especially with more traditional societies and and uh, more religious societies, probably definitely definitely resonates. Well, Sonia, thank you so much for your time. Um, I just want to see if you have anything else to add. And I guess my last question would be just what what about this whole experience that started as an MFA thesis um, has ended up sparking so much conversation that you've been involved in? What's surprised and delighted you about this whole process? You know, it's so many things, so many things. I mean, within when I was writing it, I knew, you know, but for if we go back to diversion, di- di- diversity, inclusion, etc., you know, I, I remember being quite struck by the fact that Anne de Berg doesn't say a word in Pride and Prejudice. She is silent the whole time. And it seemed to me that she's very much a device in this respect. She's a plot device because here's this cousin. She's Catherine de Berg's daughter. Darcy has to marry her. And, um, you know, she she's the foil in a way for Elizabeth. And um, she doesn't have any agency. She doesn't say a word. We don't even, if I'm correct, we don't really even know what she's suffering from. Um, she even says at one point where she reads Pride and Prejudice, I do not want to be Anne de you know. Yes, I'm that's, not a, to that's, a wonderful, because, that's a wonderful meta you know, moment where she says, I refuse right. to become the character that you, reader, are about to make yes. me. <laughs> yes. So, so, you know, so I very much wanted to do these changes where I, you know, where I do bring in more inclusivity and more, more to, 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 the, to a contemporary version of, of the novel. Um, you know, I think I think the mo- two most delightful, the most delightful and 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 unexpected, completely. I hadn't thought them at all. One you slightly mentioned was um, people. I I thought, I really thought. Well, I never thought that someone would read Unmarriageable and then go and read Pride and Prejudice. Like that just had not occurred to me at any level whatsoever. And I remember, and I did burst into tears the first time someone told me that. I mean, my jaw dropped. I mean, I, 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 I mean, I just, I, I mean, <laughs> I just didn't. I, I mean, I didn't think I would be the gateway to someone reading Jane Austen or Pride and Prejudice. So that was that was a huge, huge compliment and and honor. Actually, that's amazing um, because and, you've and it, you've made and, someone realize how relevant it is. The, these well, novels are, and they, they might chance. not have. They were, yeah, there was no you part know, of them that had a goal of, of checking out this 19th century. Right. There was, there was <laughs> nothing in them that may have, yeah, wanted to pick up something written 200 years ago and suddenly here they are picking it up and, and picking it up knowing the story already, really, you know? I mean, part of the, part of the wonderful thing was they've already read the story and now they're going to read the, 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 the source material. So, so that was wonderful. And in fact, I have readers from all over the world who who feel that I've written their 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 stories or their families. It's just I'm like you're all back. the whole world seems to be Pakistani, which is good and not good sometimes. You're right. But, you um, have you have unexpected Pakistani characters who are very contemporary and wealthy and cosmopolitan but, and some but, are but religious. But the thing is it's not it, yes, it's not unexpected though. That's how Pakistan is. There's no one Pakistan. There are lots of Pakistans. Like there's no one you US. 
you know, there's no one America. There, there are a million Americas within America. Same with Pakistan. I mean, in the, in my Bennett sisters alone, we see them run the religious gamut. You know, we have Mari, who's who's very religious within that family. We have Alice, who tends not to be that religious. The rest, everyone practices in their own way. Um, you know, and 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 there's so many, and we have Charlotte, my Sherry, her family. There's a lot of socioeconomic differences um, in the novel, which I definitely wanted to show when it comes to Pakistan. In fact, um, uh, the na uh, the biggest national newspaper in uh, in Pakistan, Dawn, they did a wonderful review for Unmarriageable. Um, it's Dawn.com. It's available online, and in it they said that, uh, which was very gratifying to hear. That I was that this was the first novel by an anglophone writer who had actually gotten the socioeconomic class stratas right. You know that I was able to to write them. I was able to write them at all. So and I'd worked very hard on that. So that was very gratifying to hear. Um, it's it's but, true. Uh, and but, and when I say unexpected, I guess I'm I'm talking from the publisher's point of view. You know, um, they are reluctant. I mean, I see this as a journalist reluctant to to give anything that you say doesn't fit in with the expectations. And so then it's so hard to, <laughs> to defy expectations. Um, but that's you what know, Jane it, Austen it, was doing all the time, was defying expectations and of what yeah. we think about young I women mean, in mean, Regency. You, you, right. I mean, the thing is, when it comes to Austen, can we, those of us who may not be familiar with her history tend to think that, well, she's so obviously popular now. In fact, I'll go far as to say that she, she may be the most popular author in you know British author around today and um, and and the most beloved book being Pride and Prejudice, but the fact is in her own time she really struggled to get published and she had a lot of ups and downs. Northanger Abbey sold and then it was was it Northanger Abbey which book of her sold and then it wasn't I think it was Pride and Prejudice I forget which one it was but she'd sell books and then the publishers would hold on to them and not publish yes. them. Northanger and then Abbey they'd was ask held for, their, for oh it was and yeah it was Northanger Abbey right. And then, and then she she didn't have the ten pounds in which to pay to pay them back with, which tells you so much about her circumstances, her dependency on her brothers or male relatives. It's 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 as a writer myself with with a horrible history of not being published because apparently my stories will not be relatable to the book club in Kansas. Um, you know, I, re, re, reading Jane Austen's publishing history was. Um, at the end of the day, we're all, you know, she was a writer also, so am I. And, and it, so that that relatability was really there. What what do you think, Sonia, um, you know, in, in terms of, you know, so many people questioning white supremacy, looking at racial justice, looking at better inclusivity, including um, some Janeites in the Janeite community, what do you think uh, people should keep in mind when reading Jane Austen? What would you like the Janeite community to keep in mind to make our discussions I say are, I'm kind of an outsider, but um, the discussions about Jane Austen more inclusive. What, what should people keep in mind when reading and, and having these conversations? I think, I think it comes down to the readers being aware of the space that Austen is writing in and, the, and, and what she's writing. And for me, there, there have always, you know, with her thematic content, there's always been universality um, across time and centuries. Uh, and, and she has a certain, and just as a writer, she has a certain modern way of writing. You know, she doesn't, unlike Edith Wharton or unlike Dickens, she doesn't, she doesn't, you know, she doesn't preach and she doesn't go off into long pages of descriptions and stuff. She's a very modern writer when it comes to pacing and, um, 
interesting. So I hear what you're saying that, uh, you know, there's so much universality to pick up and to explore. There, there is, which is, which is why I think with Jainites and with the Austin communities and stuff, um, you know, uh, bringing in, uh, I think Austin has a lot to offer readers from all communities and, and, and stuff. And uh, she's, she's not just for a certain, a certain age group or a certain, uh, you know, <laughs> she, she's, she, anyone can read her and find something of, um, of worth and merit. was author Sonia Kamau, whose novel Unmarriageable takes Jane Austen's classic Pride and Prejudice and sets it in post-colonial Pakistan. I'm Plain Jane, your host. You can see many, many more conversations about how Jane Austen's stories connect with our lives today and connect us with each other at our Substack newsletter, The Austen Connection. Subscribe and thank you for being here. Reach out to us at The Austin Connection to let us know what you're reading these days. Be well.